Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Tulsa World Opinion video podcast. I'm Jenny Graham, the editorial's editor. I'm Bob Bissett, editorial writer and columnist. And another week has gone by. So I've been a little, not a, I've been taken by the, the interim studies lately. And I know interim studies aren't exactly what the uh, uh, public is talking about right now. But there are things outside the election that are happening. And this week, the at the Capitol, and I think there are a couple of committees on criminal justice and corrections that it started out with the question, why haven't lawmakers funded state question 781? Mm -hmm. So as a reminder, since we're talking about this, mm -hmm. state question 780 and 781, they were passed by an initiative petition approved by voters in 2016. So we're going back a ways. And what it did is that it reclassified some felonies into misdemeanors, particularly around drugs. You know, we were, voters had, you know, Oklahomans decided we were throwing too many people in prison for drugs when they probably should have been misdemeanors and offer treatment, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. The companion to that, 781, said any savings made from reducing the prison population needs to go to the counties and then the county governments, the commissioners typically, would decide how best to expend that. And that would be based on population. So, you know, Tulsa and Oklahoma City would get more because there are more people that we were sending. Now we're not. And that's how that would work out. So not a dime has been spent on that. So the prison population has come down and they've shown that. There was some disagreement at first of deciding how much money has been saved, but these different stakeholders came to an agreement, I want to say two years ago now, of what that is. And the tab overall, going back, is $70 million. Last year alone, this group estimated it was about $20 million. And the lawmakers, the legislature has refused to fund this. So that's what started this whole thing. So, um, of all, and it kind of veered off. And I know that, that Bob hasn't been paying attention to it. I know you have strong feelings about 780 and 781. And uh, lawmaker or uh, prosecutors tend to not like it and law enforcement uses it, but it's the law. When you pay it. Mm -hmm. But what's interesting is it sort of veered off because we had a lot of uh, rural sheriffs and lawmakers and people come to the table to testify and they're talking about just how hard it is to run their jails because they can't find people to work there. The pay is low. The, the mental health services was brought up. I ended up, of course, writing about what I think people will say is the most boring thing they talked about. <laughs> but it's data. We, it's the data collection. And Bob, you've worked with a lot of data on this in this profession. Have you sure. worked much with, with criminal justice or law enforcement data? Oh, yeah. A lot of stuff with FBI statistics and whatever local departments come up with. And I won't get into the uh, three-month homicide project I did in Oklahoma City. That, that'll bore you to tears, but yes. But you just had to deal with one agency. And so you yeah. probably dealt with that. And so a lot of people deal with that one agency. What I didn't realize until this was how much of a patchwork we have in law enforcement as far as criminal data collection, storage, and then how they report. So we have all these different vendors with different systems across different counties. And the, 
Logan County Sheriff and Under Sheriff testified that well, they have 66 counties on this one system. Oklahoma County, right to the south of them, one of the biggest counties in the state, they're on a different system. So if they pick up someone or doing a check on someone that they've stopped in Logan County and do a check, they may not be picking up stuff in Oklahoma County because two different systems. So he may be wanted on an arrest in Oklahoma County and they may not know because of the way it works. And so that was somewhat appalling that we're on that kind of a, a disjointed system. Right. And there are, and I, this was an issue. I remember 25 years ago, I want to say I was looking it up, but there was a reporter here who did a series of stories on DUIs. There was this rash of DUIs. Uh, yeah, I remember that. And one of the reasons they, and these people would have 20 arrests. Like how does someone have 20 DUIs without going to prison or out serving time? And that's, that was an issue, was the data collection then. At the time, it was between municipal courts and the state courts, that they weren't two different systems not talking. And so there was an effort to bring those together. But what it didn't do was bring the counties together. And so we still have this fractured system. And some and again, it gets tedious about you know, the SBI information director got really tedious about involved in the minutiae, but what it, you can't do are answer basic questions. So I one time tried to find out like how many people last year were arrested on drug crimes. If you can't find out, there's no system collecting that information. And in some cases they would have, they wouldn't include, some counties wouldn't include all the charges. Maybe they just included the lead charge. So if like you know, arrested for robbery, but they had all these other misdemeanors. Maybe the misdemeanors weren't included. Yeah. And Melody Blanchett, a representative, used the example of she wanted to find out how many people were sitting in pre sitting in jails across the state at the moment, waiting for a trial, like pre-trial. You know, and no one knew. No one is is capturing that data. And the bigger point there is that it's hard to make policies if you don't have a basis of fact. Yeah. And so all of this can be boring and it's policy stuff, but if we, and there's pushback on this, there, you know, there are district attorneys and law enforcement who don't want to change because they don't like change, but there's a fear that it'll make crime look worse or, and a real thing that they brought up is trying is to pay for it and to have people trained in data to do it. And that's legit. And I think the state ought to be paying for that. We have a stake in this. So we should, it's hard enough to recruit people to work in law enforcement. And when you're looking for IT people, it's even harder. The state mm -hmm. needs to push that. So that's, I started, that's what I wrote about was just the importance of, we have to find, we have to all agree that we need to have factual information. So that's surely something in a bipartisan way we can agree on. Today, a hot button issue on crime. I mean, that, that's true. Like how you know, crime rates that was brought up in the governor's race, right? Yeah, it's a hot button issue. And I mean, if we're going to be serious about doing something besides just talking about it, we need to have the facts in front of us to see what we're actually trying to tackle. I mean, the fact that you were trying to search for 
drug offenses. How many of of these we got? And there's no way to track it unless you were just going to go like county to county or, you know, jurisdiction to jurisdiction. I mean, that would take years. That's ridiculous. That should be something that you should be able to pull up if you want to track how bad the problem actually is. Right. And and I remember the time when I was looking into this, I was trying to find out like average sentence sentences. So if you were arrested, uh, you know, on some sort of misdemeanor, like you a pot, like marijuana, this was before medical marijuana, what was the average sentence? But there was no way to even know how many people were arrested for possession of marijuana. And then there were, and without knowing that there was no way I could find out average sentencing. So there's no way to be um, not just a watchdog over it, but just basic, like, what is the landscape here? And from the lawmaker standpoint, if you're one, if you're trying to figure out, you know, bail reform, well, how do you know that without knowing what the average bail for certain offenses are? I mean, those are kind of the, the questions that need to be answered. And instead of coming at it from an, er- a, an area of fear, Look at it like this could bolster your argument for more resources. This could actually help you prove that you need certain services. And that got into the mental health thing today. So Randy Crable wrote a story about the interim study testimony yesterday that veered into mental health. And they had Caddo County spoke about how they would be holding people who would be found not guilty by um, uh, I forget the, you know, uh, mental illness, basically. I forget mm-hmm. the exact charge, but they need to be in Vanita. That's the highest, uh, the Vanita hospital is the highest psychiatric care, but there's no room. There are no beds there. So there, so they have these people in county jails, in counties with no mental health services and people are harming themselves. They have no, I mean, it, this is, we have laid the problem of mental health at the feet of every agency without actually just funding services for mental health. And, you know, it's a fascinating story. When I, when we think of mental health, we've spoken about it. We've kind of said it's, we've, we've said it's a nonprofit's responsibility. It's a jail. We built a wing onto the jail in Tulsa for just for mental health. And I remember thinking, why didn't we do this at a hospital? Why didn't we, as taxpayers, say, no, we don't want our mental health wing at a jail. We want it somewhere else. And even schools. You know, schools are tasked with that, too. People talk about behavior problems. Well, they're mental health problems. You want to hear something interesting? Uh Uh-huh. Slight observation. Pull out some comic book geekiness here. Mm-hmm. But you go into the whole Batman thing about Arkham Prism and there and all the crazy people there, the supervillain crazy people and stuff like that. And it was just kind of a a visual that was put out there by the idea of the mental institutions that we used to have, right? Right. And we tried to go away from that. We don't want to institutionalize these things and all the abuses that there is. And now look where we are. We have mm-hmm. a mental health wing in a jail right and we have a huge homeless problem and let's just be clear about you know tulsa county jail i mean i'm not going to say it's h unit or anything hard like that but you know if you're going to be locked up somewhere tulsa county is one of the toughest places you can be we really haven't gone anywhere have we 
I, and you know, <laughs> people that are running the jail aren't trained for that. No, I mean, jailers are not psychiatric nurses and that's what we're asking to do. And that makes it harder to recruit people to be jailers, to be those people and to do those jobs. And it's not right. And we've got to figure out as a society, a better system. Um, because, you know, I think there are improvements in the criminal justice system we need. We need to, but we need the data to find out. And also how many people have a diagnosis of mental illness that are in, in, in our jails that are arrested. I, you know, who knows? I mean, there are all kinds of data collection opportunities that could help us target just that, you know, because we've all, Vic, our county sheriff, Vic Regalado says, this is the largest mental facility in the state. And he may be right. And we can't be doing this to our criminal justice system. We've got to yeah. get good information to make better, so our lawmakers can make better decisions and then use that 781 funding in a more efficient way. So that way, when the county commissioners are making those decisions, they have information in front of them of what's really happening in their communities, you know, from, from charges to sentencing to, to all of that. So, um, so I kind of make this point that th there was a bill last year introduced by Melody Blanchett. It went nowhere, but she has Representative J.J. Humphrey, who was the committee chair. He's a um, Republican from Lane. And he knows his stuff on this issue. When it comes to criminal justice and prisons, J.J. Humphrey really, really knows his stuff. And he and Melanie are on the same page. I mean, they two people on the completely opposite sides of the political spectrum. I mean, they could not be more different. But on this issue, they're finding a lot of common ground. And I was joking yesterday that whatever they come up with with Tara's recommendations, if it were me, and I see these... <laughs> Representative Blanchett and Representative Humphrey agreeing on something, that should be a done deal. That right. to get those two people to agree to something, I don't know whether it'll work out that way, but just having, you know, spoken to those two, that that would mean, and, for, and I love that. I love that two people that, that are so opposite could come to an agreement and find, you know, areas around an issue like this that that could be improved. So see more of that. Yeah. But, you know, I talked a little bit of, I was, mention schools because we always end up coming around to schools and schools are certainly on the ballot as you've written about mm -hmm. this this year your column this weekend looks more into rural schools rural schools have been dominating this election season uh, particularly are. around vouchers and you sort of explain a little bit as to why why rural schools are dominating the conversation well, this is something I think, obviously, you've got experience with this because you went to small schools growing up. So you understand, as does anybody who went to a, a small town school, how important that institution is to the viability of a town, not just its identity, but its viability. It's, it's so, the health of the town. It really is. You know, if you've got a... a even if you're a smaller town, if you've got a good, vibrant school, your town is, is on pretty good footing for the most part. That's not the only thing, but it's a big thing. So I was kind of taking a look at, you know, some of my experiences in the past about, you know, what that looks like in a community. You know, what does, what kind of a role do these schools have in the communities that they're in? 
you know, when they're healthy and also when they're not and what happens in a town when they lose a school. So, and it, you know, when you lose a school, basically all you've got after that is like your post office. And once you lose that, you're done. There is no town. And I think a lot of people are afraid of that. And that's one of the reasons why the issue of school consolidation has gone almost nowhere in decades. You know, we've got a lot of school districts in Oklahoma, which means there's a lot of administrative overhead. And you've got, you know, your budget hawks are like, you know, if we could just simplify this, consolidate some of these things, we can save a lot of money in schools and put that back in classrooms. But people will dig in their heels to protect their own schools because of how much of a thing that is for their community. And I think that is one of the reasons why the voucher issue has resonated so deeply in circles that you wouldn't expect. You know, we're used to seeing things where your leaders of either party, when they put their stamp on something, everyone goes along, right? But right. that is not the case on this issue. We saw how that went down in the state Senate. The voucher plan didn't even win a vote there. It was four votes short, if, my, if memory two serves. Votes. Right. It, it failed by two votes. Just two? It's okay, by, well, by it was two. short. Uh -huh. um, and then it didn't even get it didn't even get looked at in the house. It wasn't even going to get looked at in the house. That's what the house speaker said. Is like, yeah, it's not an issue that our caucus is interested in. Let's play another game. So now we've got uh, four different campaigns. Uh, two of them proposing, you know, school vouchers, going for that. Let's see that happen. And two of them saying, no, let's not do that. So it's definitely in the realm of the political cycle. And particularly playing into those constituencies that normally would be really strong for Republicans. But that's not really shaping up this way. It's giving a lot of people cause. And that, that, I think that's one of the reasons why people are looking at polling data and trying to see what's going on. And the folks that are just being real about it say, we're a little all over the place because this is not falling into the normal slots that it normally would to tell us what's happening. People are actually having to make a lot of, lot tougher decisions in the, in the voting booth than they have in the past, whereas they might just check the R or check the D. Now it's like, I got to think about this because... You know, there's maybe some things I like about these people, but this one thing right here could make the difference in my school staying healthy or start to decline, right. mostly because of the idea that vouchers would take money out of the pot for public schools, and it would hurt rural schools more than most without getting any real benefit just because most of the private schools that would benefit from these vouchers are in the metro areas. Right. So I find it interesting. And I find that personally for me, it resonates just because of my experiences. You know, I went to a, for a brief time, I was in a little school out in Northern mm -hmm. Illinois. And I remember what life was like in that and, you know, covering small school sports and going to these different places and just seeing how, it's different. It's not saying that, you know, the, the parents at TPS or Jenks or Union 
don't love their schools anymore, but the identity of the city of Tulsa is not defined by TPS or Union or Jinx. Right. It's you go to Barnstall. Because it's and I just remember, you know, growing up, it was no, I mean, people would go to the football games. You would talk Friday night lights is a real deal. You right now, if you go to TPS schools, people in the stands are connected, like have kids in the school Mm -hmm. or know someone who's on the sidelines and the band. Same with union, typically, the people yeah. that are attending. That's not the case in rural, in rural Oklahoma. There are people that go to football games. They have no kids or grandkids in the school. They just live in the town, and that's the entertainment. They that's just enjoy the seeing, and maybe typically an alumni of the school. Maybe they live there the whole lot. But I just remember, like even my, my stepdad, after my sister and I long graduated, he was still going to basketball games. And oh, yeah. Yeah, you know, because he just loved basketball. That was this. That's what you did. So people typically don't want another school. Like there's this argument of, well, there's no choice in, I'll choose my hometown. So Perry doesn't have another private school. There's not a lot, whole lot of people clamoring for another school in Perry. Frankly, mm-hmm. they may not be able to support that. I mean, when your classes are, you know, your class sizes are small, what they really want are just improvements in their school. They would like to see just investments put in the school that they already love, support, and are loyal to. Mm-hmm. So the idea of vouchers, people aren't necessarily wanting, you know, a, a competitor, so to speak. You know, maybe there is, I mean, I don't know. I mean, obviously I don't live, live there anymore, but for the most part, I just think people want to improve things. And right now, yes, we are funding our schools more than we have in the past. But part of that is just that, you know, we're going to probably 10 years from now be putting more money in than we are now. That's just cost of living and the way things work. But we're still not funding it at the regional average. We're still really behind on per pupil expenditure. We're like 47th or 49th in the nation, which reflects how much programming and curriculum and, and professional development, those kind of things that we're not investing. So until we can really bring our current system up, why would we create a whole other system that would just take away? Because that voucher bill that was defeated in the Senate, it was estimated that that would have cost the state, it would have pulled out 166 million. Mm -hmm. So we had 22 senators willing to spend $166 million to private schools that are typically in the metro areas, which I keep bringing up. When it came time to allocate, you know, the budget, schools got 0.5%. They did, they got like 17 million, something like that. I can't remember exactly, but they certainly didn't get 166 million. No. And so until I think, I I really do think Oklahomans are like, until we can really start showing that our, that we improve our current system, why would we, you know, peel money away? And, and give it somewhere else. So I don't know. I just, I do think rural Oklahoma, they, they're they're just loyal to, I mean, I, someone had asked me, like, because whenever there's in, in the metro areas, if you change a mascot at a school, there's a big, you know, yeah. alumni blow up. School consolidation in metro areas, which happens every once in a while, alumni blow up. They don't want to lose their, mm-hmm. where they went. And I've always kind of had the argument, especially here, like, well, are you, you know, you, you, that experience worked for you, but not 
maybe is working out now. Someone said, well, what if your high school shut down? I go, well, if my high school shuts down, the town's gone. Because that's yeah. what it means in rural schools. If someone were to say Perry High School shutting down, I go, oh, so Perry's gone now. Because that's the last thing to, to leave. And, and and that is different there. The, the thinking is different there. So, and I, maybe people from the metro areas maybe don't quite understand that. Um, I don't know. So, um, but I am glad to see, I am glad that there is that. I, I like growing up in a small town. So, so I kind of like that. Hey, I, um, I said that, that that year that I was in Marengo, Illinois, uh -huh. at Thorne Elementary was the best year of my childhood. It was amazing. I was a hellion and we had a crew of us in the fifth grade and we just ran the show. We had a lot of fun. Our basketball team was awful and people showed up. There'd be 200 people in the stands and all that stuff. For an elementary game. For an elementary game. That's yeah. right. It, and we, we were so bad that sometimes if the people in the uh, seventh and eighth grade team didn't have enough people because someone was out sick or something like that. They'd pull us out and put us. Oh, in the they play it. You got played up. So I had a lot of good memories from being there and doing some research for this column. I discovered that back in 2004, the home of the Hawthorne Tomahawks is no more. That school has closed. Wow. So it's one of those things that's like, man, how bittersweet is that? And just. But at least the town still exists because there are other schools in the area and it's just kind of a central school in the town. But when you lose that school, um, it, it hits different. And, you know, with those small towns, the real small ones that are just kind of on the edge, just barely keeping it together, they lose that school. That's where I think this issue in particular transcends uh, partisan leanings. And I think that may be one of the reasons why rural Oklahoma, whereas not before, is in play this November. Right. And um, yeah, I had my, my kid had asked me about if I regretted not raising them in a small town. I said, I love growing up in a small town. Um, I said, but it just it's but raising kids in a metro area in TPS, it, it's different. You know, the experience of going to high school games is different. The I said, we didn't have as we didn't have as many options. Like when I went to school, we didn't have AP classes. And so now rural schools are able to do that. So I think the rural schools just want to be able to compete. They want to have the resources to offer what is offered in the metro areas. So like I say, growing up, I didn't have as many, you know, opportunities that you, you do. I think that that's what they're arguing for. You know, don't take away from us. We don't want to have to leave our school, just give us the resources so we can offer the same things. Yep. Um, but they definitely, when it comes to sports, I just, for us, it was wrestling. So junior high wrestling got a crowd. So that, that was ours, but, <laughs> yeah. uh, but it is. And I, uh, you yeah. guys and Gary. Oh, we went to the Gary tournament. Yeah. Oh yeah. We beat Gary in my day. I don't know what it is now, but you know, mad squabbles between Perry and Gary. Was Perry and Blackwell, 1989, Perry Wrestling Queen right here. Okay. I tell everyone, it's like everything went downhill after that. Just, you know, it all just, that was a pinnacle of my life right there, 1989. So going into changing the subject here, we are entering the last of the election season that has mm -hmm. gone on what seems like way long mm -hmm. time. But I wanted to remind people that we have letters to the editor 
that if you, because I've heard we've had endorsements going on for the last week and we're kind of wrapping up the last of our endorsements this weekend. So, and those are just our endorsements. I encourage people, you know, read us, see our reasoning, but then go and, and learn on your own too. Let, you know, be an yep. informed voter. And if you are so moved, if you're, if you're mad at our endorsement or you're glad, or you just want to have something on your mind, the last of our campaign related letters will be published next Friday. So that doesn't mean you send it on Thursday and it gets in. You really need to send that by, I mean, I would say Monday, Tuesday. Like if you listen to this, write it now and send it. Yes, right. Do it now because we're filling up fast. Right. Because what will happen, as happens all the time, Wednesday we'll have 80 letters come in and everyone wants their letter in before the election. It's not going to happen. So, um, and then we'll have to, you know, it's first come, first serve at that point. Yes. Because we want to get all the letters in that we can. We can't, and as I've said a lot lately to people who are upset, we can only publish the letters we get. So if you're wondering why do we have more of this or that, probably we haven't had it come in. So, uh, but the last letters, you can you can get it to us by send, going to tulsaworld.com backslash opinion backslash submit letter. An easier way, just go to Tulsa World, go to the opinion section, and you'll see submit letter there. It's all on tabs on the page. And that's the easiest way. Fill out the form, write the letter, 250 words, get it to us. And we appreciate it. So um, other than that, any last words, Bob? Oh, man. What are we? Uh, it's finally starting to feel like fall out there. Sort of. We have Halloween coming up. What's your favorite Halloween candy? Oh, gosh. That's either Kit Kat or Reese's. Well, Snickers is always the go-to, but now is the time that you can get candy corn and mix it with peanuts, and it's kind of like a payday, which is awesome because it's not a payday. It's a mix of this weird fall thing that I, I only eat once a year. Mm, no. I mean, I like chocolate. Don't get me wrong, but that's, that's, where, I, that's where I can veer I off. Smarties over what you're talking about. Smarties are fantastic. What is your problem with candy? I don't know. I'm just not much of a candy guy, I guess. Unless it's a Kit Kat or a Reese's, man. I'm all over that stuff. And my kids now are teenagers and don't go trick-or-treating, and I kind of miss that. Because the awesome thing with kids that they would get these huge sacks of candy, dump it all out at the end, and then they would swap and trade. Because they would, you know, like different things. I'll be giving out candy. I'm going, I'm giving out, I'm doing a trunk or treat at a park. And then I'll give out candy and my teenagers are going to go somewhere and hopefully they'll tell me where and then come home. <laughs> so, Of course, you know. there's always the adult, you know, the Halloween parties, costume parties for the adult crowds. Yeah, I don't those. I'm going to probably just be watching. I don't know. I usually read some uh, Edgar Allan Poe just to get in the mood because I love Edgar Allan Poe, especially this time of year. And uh, I'm not sure what I'll Maybe the Simpsons. Simpsons are always uh, old Simpsons Halloween episodes are always a good go-to on Halloween. As long as it doesn't bleed into November. Once October 31st. Comes oh, it's around, over. Spooky season. Yeah, I'm is a hard line. Once that ha- the holiday's over, up goes Thanksgiving, and Thanksgiving stays up all the way through Thanksgiving. I'm a I huge will say the the cool thing about the 
adult Halloween costume party is the creativity. And I think the favorite costume that I ever had was, uh, what's that kid's name from Stranger Things? The curly-headed kid. Yeah, I don't know. Oh, God. I know who you're talking about, but I don't know the name. He's on the tip of my tongue here, but I came dressed as him. I even had, like, the Camp Wapanuka t-shirt. All that stuff, the hat with the curly hair and all that stuff going on. It was it was great. It was a lot of fun. And I, I won. Have, I used to throw the Halloween parties before I became a family woman. Um, but I remember a friend of mine, Mark Brown, he came one year as a golden driller. And he had oh, wow. spray painted gold, like everything, like a hat, a shirt, like shoes. Everything was gold. He put gold on his face. And I'm like... It was pretty awesome, actually. <laughs> I'm like, okay, one. And that was the year I went as Courtney Love, which was great because I could just like, you wear crazy makeup and I had a crown on my head. Yeah, that was fun. Nice. The Courtney fact that Love. I'm referencing Courtney Love tells you how long ago that party was. How very Gen X of you. How that, that's, yeah, exactly. So anyway. Did you sing doll parts at the at the party? I believe it was played a few times. I think that was in the Alanis Morissette time too. So I'm dating myself. Yeah, exactly. My daughter, had... my, old, my daughter found my old Duran Duran posters in the attic and she thought this looks weird and then put them up. And I'm like, they're not weird, they were cool. So that's where I'm at. But at you least they're gonna have a partner come with you, a date come with life. you as Kurt Cobain. <laughs> and then everyone will be like, who are these people? Well, now, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like Dave Grohl we get, so. Back then, okay. that would have been pretty rad. See, yeah, this is what you get on the Opinion Podcast. You know, sure. little Gen X talk. Well, anyway, I hope that everyone has a good Halloween and a safe Halloween and a fun one. And um, the election will be over soon for those who are irritated and for those who are frustrated. But, mm -hmm. uh, but it is just an election. There will be winners and losers. But just go vote, be informed. And uh, anyway, have a good weekend, everyone. Be good to each other.